Welcome to the Sperber Prize podcast, a show where I'll talk to winners and nominees of Fordham's annual award given in honor of author Anne Sperber and her biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs detailing the unseen backgrounds of some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. This season, we'll be looking at themes of sexism, ethics, technology, objectivity, and more. I'm your host, Rena Lokai. Today I'll be speaking with author Vincent Kiernan. He's currently a dean at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. But before his work in academia, Dr. Kiernan worked as a science and medical journalist for over 20 years. He's the author of several books, including Atomic Bill, which follows the story of William Lawrence. Lawrence was a prominent science journalist who covered atomic bombs and other science-related stories during and after World War II, but often found himself in ethical dilemmas. Thank you, Dr. Kiernan, for being here to speak with me today. Oh, it's very much my pleasure. So I guess I, I first wanted to start by asking why you decided to write this book in the first place, like why you thought this was a story that needed to be told. So I have a long interest in science journalism and its connection with society. I was a science journalist myself for about 20 years before I went into higher education. And I think it's an undertold story about the relationships between scientists, the scientific establishment, the government, that whole bureaucracy, and journalists. How science affects journalists in how they cover science. We often think about science as being completely separate and journalists are outside it watching and writing or reporting uh, totally independently. But one of the things I came to understand when I was a science writer was that much of what science journalists do is strongly influenced, if not outright determined, by things happening in the scientific establishment. So I find that very interesting. It's very contrary to the story that we tell about journalism and how journalists work. And I find it very interesting. I also think that it's not actually as uncommon as you might think in other parts of journalism. Uh, there are other areas of journalism where journalists are very strongly shaped and even determined in their actions by the sources that work with them. But we have this mythology of journalism that that's not the case. It's just that I know about science journalism having lived it. And so I was able to peel off that layer of onion on journalism uh, more easily than other forms of journalism would have been less easily accessible to me. But in a big sense, that's why I find this interesting. It's a great test case of how journalists are often unwittingly, often actually quite willingly, are uh, letting themselves be controlled by their sources. Then what made you feel passionate to tell William Lawrence's story as opposed to the number of other scientific, science journalists that you mention in the book? No, that's a fair question. Lawrence is a pioneer or was a pioneer among science journalists. He came on the scene at a time when there really weren't very many other science journalists. It came, it came in a time when, first off, the media then were, it was essentially just newspapers and magazines. Editors then thought that the public had no interest in science, medicine, technology as news. So Lawrence was one of a small cadre in the 1920s and 1930s who came on the scene and really consciously tried to change journalism in a way to bring more science, bring more medicine, bring more technology into the reporting. So one reason 
that I wanted to talk about Lawrence was Lawrence was a pioneer. He was one of this this early crop of other science journalists, many of whom pop up in my book From Place to Place. And the other is that he's among journalists, among science journalists. Lawrence himself is very famous. He's known as the guy who was at the atom bomb. And so he's a big historical, mythological figure in journalists. One of my early jobs in journalism was covering some of the federal government's nuclear weapons laboratories in California. So I learned about Lawrence then. And when it came, when I decided I wanted to poke around in someone's life, Lawrence was a good one to start with. I actually wasn't sure I would get a book out of him. I started looking, I started pulling on strings. Could I at least get a chapter about Lawrence? And very quickly, it became clear that not only would I have a chapter, I'd have many chapters about him. So speaking on that, how did you go about researching his book or his life? Because you have so much information on Lawrence in your book. And I was wondering how you even came to find out all that information. I followed leads where they led me. In other words, I went and spent many, many, many hours in the National Archives and just followed various leads that they gave me. I tried various uh, university libraries, university archives, and I just looked around and there was no one place that had everything that I needed. I just had to look at many places and put together sort of this fossil record of Lawrence from his past. It took a lot of time, uh, but I enjoyed doing it. It was interesting to put together a picture of a man that I really never expected. Most of what I learned about Lawrence, I really did learn, I didn't expect. So when you said that you wanted to at least get enough information for a chapter, was your original idea to make a book about science journalism during this time as a whole, or did you want to go into it about William Lawrence himself? No, initially I was thinking it might be interesting to write about this era of science journalism and perhaps write about several of the key characters who were very interesting each in their own way. And I thought, well, before I do that, let me pick one and test the waters with it. And so I tested the waters with Lawrence. So now I want to go a little more specific into Lawrence. So Lawrence also kind of like he was drawn to these scientific topics, not just about nuclear science, but also about medicine and stuff like that. Do you know where his love and curiosity for science stemmed from? I believe it stems from his upbringing in Lithuania. He was raised by a very orthodox family that did actually not have a lot of interest in science, in Western things in general. But while he was there, he found books and it really fascinated him. Things like Mars. He was very fascinated in the planet Mars and the possibility of people going to Mars and traveling. As a youth, he was very fascinated with the possibility of the atom. What could the atom be? Of course, back then, the turn of that century, they didn't know. They didn't even know the structure of the atom yet. But he was very future-oriented. And I think science really appealed to him there in a way that he could not get from his Orthodox faith. That's what led him to come to the United States. He ran away from his family, essentially. And as a teenager still, came to the U.S. to try to find a new life. And I think it was really motivated by this interest in the future and science. And in your book, you don't really talk much about um, Lawrence's upbringing. You don't talk much about his personal life at all, even though sometimes people's upbringings and people's personal lives can show the progression of why they became who they did. So I was wondering why you decided to leave that out and focus pretty much solely on his career. Uh, quite candidly, my editor and I had a conversation about that, and he thought that the early life part of Lawrence's life 
was not as interesting, that people would be mostly interested in his association with the atom bomb. And so that's what we decided to focus on. Lawrence did have an interesting earlier life, uh, even as a journalist. He worked for the New York World, a Pulitzer newspaper. It was very, that was a very flamboyant newspaper. I think that's where he picked up a lot of his flamboyant writing. Uh, Not necessarily about science. He was writing about aeronautics, which then was a very fancy thing to do. But he'd also, he had had a, a very troubled time at Harvard University. And I go into that a little bit in the book, but he was quite a character. So you mentioned that he had a tendency for flamboyant writing, as you call it. He tended to exaggerate things. Sometimes he was even wrong about things. And why do you think that this is the way that he decided to tell these scientific stories? I think it's the way he tried to tell all his stories. I think he was inherently a flamboyant person. So it's not that he was trying to be flamboyant about science. He was flamboyant about everything. He deployed that as a tool in his newspaper writing because he knew the more exciting, the more flamboyant, the more important a story was, the more likely it was to be on the front page. And he desperately wanted to be on the front page. So everything he wrote about, uh, not just the atom, any story he wrote about had a lot of hype in it because I think he was trying to claw his way onto the front page all the time. Kind of going along that, you know, he was flamboyant and that's okay for some journalists, but other times he went so far as to break ethical standards that maybe other journalists could not do. What made it be possible for him to kind of break these ethical standards and still become as important a journalist as he was? Yeah, I think that's one of the central questions about Lawrence. I've come to believe that the reason he was able to break ethical rules that many other journalists, even of his day, would not have broken was because at heart, he didn't think of himself as a journalist. He didn't go to journalism school, not that there were a lot of journalism schools back then, but he hadn't taken formal journalism training. Before he went into writing for newspapers about science or aviation, it's not like he'd spent a lot of time in sort of standard journalism sort of stuff. And really what he conceived of himself as was what we call a science communicator. In other words, his idea of what his job was, was to get people to understand the science of whatever is in the news, to understand the science and to embrace the science and to support the science. So it's not what most journalists would say about science journalism, which is you're a neutral party. You're not supposed to be a cheerleader for science. If science has done something bad, you should be willing to say that. Lawrence was very much a cheerleader for science because he thought science was always good. It was always a good thing. It was an unalloyed, always good quality for society. So people should be supporting it. They should be happy about it. And because of that, it didn't bother him to break what a journalist's ethical rules would be because he wasn't a journalist. So he didn't consider himself a journalist, but... He worked for the New York Times. He worked as a journalist for many different people. And he therefore became uh, these scientific journalists. Everyone went to him to tell these journalistic stories. So why was he able to maintain that power and that reputation despite having these flaws? He was very, very popular. He was very well known. All this hype, the stories that he told got a lot of publicity. And so he brought readers to the Times. And then just as now, today it's more about what we would call eyeballs, perhaps, than readers, but it's the same phenomenon. Back then, the Times was looking for readers. Back then, the Times was actually had much more competition in New York City, for example. And so there was a lot of competition. 
And he was an asset for them in that. That's, I believe, what kept him going so long until he became just such an ethical problem that the newspaper decided that they did have to separate themselves from him. Even today, though, we have many newspapers and now there are much more than there were back then and they're competing for these eyeballs. Do you think he would have been a successful journalist, writer, had he been reporting during this time and age? Oh, I think he would have been. One thing about Lawrence was he was unafraid to try new things. He wrote in the newspaper, but he did other things as well. He made educational films. He was on the radio. He was on television. He wrote pamphlets. So Lawrence, if he were alive today, undoubtedly would be on social media. Undoubtedly, he'd be on TikTok, having fun and telling the story. So he was very malleable in that way. So he'd be successful in that way. And given what we see as some of the ethical missteps of journalists today, I'm not sure that he would have had difficulty getting work today. Perhaps not at the Times. The Times seems perhaps now a little embarrassed of his legacy. Not totally embarrassed, but at least a little bit embarrassed of his legacy. So I'm not sure he would get hired by the Times, but there are plenty of places around that would hire him, I think. So what do you personally consider as Lawrence's greatest success story during his career? Well, undoubtedly, his his single greatest success story has to have been being present at the Trinity nuclear explosion that tested the atomic bomb before it was used in war. He was able to be there. He was able to witness it. It was a news story unlike any other news story. And he was there in recognition abilities to convey information to the public. That's what the the Manhattan Project was trying to tap into in getting him there and having him write their press releases and all the material that they needed for the atom bomb. So I think that was his great success. It was also, in a sense, his great failing in that he did a wonderful job reporting to get there and to be there. And yet what he wrote was overladen with hype, just really, really outlandish prose in his job for the Manhattan Project. He wrote a whole bunch of disinformation press releases to mislead the public in New Mexico about what what was happening there in case people called up the army, which some did, to say, what's what's all that noise and explosion going on? So it was a great triumph for him. But as with most of his triumphs, it was tainted by his unfortunate behavior. So then alongside that same line, what do you think maybe his greatest failure was? Because he did have a bunch of articles that just turned out were wrong, especially later on in his career when he went into the medicine side. They were just wrong. So what would you consider his biggest failure? One of his biggest failures was when he spent a good year trying to convince all other journalists to write about a physicist whose work had been discredited. And Lawrence, for a good year or two, wrote articles sort of hyping this fellow, a man named Aaron Haft, who had a contrarian theory about magnetism, which everybody had, all other physicists had debunked. But Lawrence had decided in his own wisdom that the rest of physics was wrong and that they were prejudiced against Aaron Haft because he was Jewish. And so Lawrence went on a basically a publicity campaign using the Times to write fawning articles about Aaron Haft. The power of the Times was such that when he wrote articles like that, everybody else had to write articles like that too. Some of them because they believed what Lawrence was saying, some just to, to have what the Times was having. And it created this huge burst of publicity that was completely wrong, was completely fictitious. You know, we're not running our computer today on magnetism. 
but that was kind of what Lawrence was envisioning a future of, using magnets as power. But it was all because he had this wrongheaded notion about who he was right and everybody else in the world was wrong. And he used it to mislead the public and scientists. And that wasn't the only case where people told him that he was wrong and he shouldn't pursue a story. But regardless of that, he ended up pursuing every story that he wanted to pursue. Do you think that was a good thing for him? Or do you think he maybe should have listened to everyone else and pursued other other stories? Oh, I think he would have been wise to listen to others. You know, we don't know about cases where the editors might have said, no, we don't want this, we don't want that. But by and large, they gave him a lot of free reign because he was very smart. He was a very, very smart man. And he was able to explain things and constantly say, this is very important. This is the most important story in the world. And editors fall for that today as back then. If there's a really important story that a reporter is selling to them credibly, they're going to go for it. And they were not necessarily in a position to direct him to other science stories. Again, not knowing about science themselves. So he was pretty much off his leash and able to do what he wanted. But you're right. He should have listened to advice from other people. There were times when people did try to wave him off stories and he just didn't listen. He knew better than others, at least in his own mind. So before doing all this research, when you first heard about William Lawrence, when you were a science journalist, what was the main thing that you took away from him that maybe you introduced into your own journalism? I took away from him a sense of initiative and what I thought to be independence. For him to have been so prominent and so involved in historical events, I took to mean that he was a very vigorous, independent, and active reporter. And I tried to be that when I was a working reporter myself. Unfortunately, I found the more I dug into him, the more I found that that was a veneer that wasn't necessarily really true. But that's how he inspired me initially. And do you think today and in the future, we're going to see someone similar who has a passion for science and becomes the science journalist? Or do you think people, especially in this country, have maybe veered away from science and into other topics? Well, certainly within journalism, journalism itself has veered away from science and other specialty areas of coverage. The Times, fortunately, has not. The Times still has a a science section and remarkable science reporters. But media in general, they're so hollowed out by the changes that have gone on in the journalism industry that they simply can't afford to have science reporters, medical reporters, in many cases also business reporters, or local government reporters. So I'm I'm not complaining just about science. I'm talking about the state of journalism in general in this country. There are very, very few full-time science journalists like Lawrence left now in the United States journalism industry. It means that most of the science news that we get originates from non-journalistic sources, such as universities or foundations or businesses, and gets very lightly reprocessed before it comes to you and me in newspapers or social media or television. So the short answer to your question is, I'm not sure there would be a place for Lawrence to work other than a few places like the Times or the Washington Post or a few other mainstays of journalism. But aside from that, there's no place for those people to work these days. There's no jobs in it. What do you think current journalists and emerging journalists should learn from Lawrence and his work? Like, what's the one piece of advice that you think he would give young journalists today? Well, I think the one piece of of, of advice that Lawrence would give is 
to look very carefully. Lawrence, for example, would when he went to a conference, he would go to every session of the conference and wait to the end because he was always convinced he would find something that no one else would find. Or he would look through every article in a journal just in case there was something interesting there. Whereas many journalists get their, get their first story idea and they'll leave. So that sort of persistence, that sort of uh, see it through to the very end was a hallmark of Lawrence. And I think he would suggest that to practicing journalists as a way to make sure that you're really getting the story that you want and a story that no one else has. So then my last question will be, since you were also a journalist years ago, what would be your one piece of advice that you would give current journalists or emerging journalists? So I would encourage journalists to not follow Lawrence's example in another way, uh, and that is to remain independent of your sources, to not let them control you, to remain in control of your own destiny and your own purposes. Don't sell your soul for access. Science does that with journalists. They'll say, for example, we'll give you early access to our paper uh, under what's called an embargo. We'll let you we'll let you read it ahead of time, but you have to wait to a certain time to write your article, to publish your article. And that sounds like a harmless thing to do, except what that's doing is putting out bait for all journalists to come together and write on that story. So the question you should be asking yourself is not, is this a good deal, but is this really the story I want to be spending my time on? Uh, is this the story that the public needs to hear? If it is, then it's okay to make that deal. But if you're being distracted from the real story, which is across the room, by this really shiny, cool sounding story that you know everybody else is going to have, so you should have it too, you're actually letting yourself be, be manipulated. And that's something to avoid. That's what Lawrence allowed himself to do. Uh, don't be like Lawrence in that regard. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, your book was great. I, I really, really enjoyed reading it. So thank you very, very much. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed chatting with you. Tune in next week to continue the conversation surrounding science and technology. We'll be talking to Lori Siegel from CNN and discussing her book, Special Characters. Special thanks to today's guest, Vincent Kiernan, to Fordham University, and to the Sperber Prize Committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at sperberprize.com. I'm your host, Rena Lokai, and thanks for listening.